This episode of the Insurance Coffee House is sponsored by Insurance Search. Insurance Search provides executive recruitment services to insurance companies and brokers in the UK and across the United States. Visit insurance-search.com for more details. The Insurance Coffee House, the place where you get to meet and learn from some of the most successful insurance business leaders from across the world. Hosted by Nick Hoadley, CEO of Insurance Search. Welcome to the Insurance Coffee House USA, the place where you get the chance to meet and learn from some of the most successful insurance business leaders in America. My name is Nick Hoadley and I'm the CEO of Insurance Search. We specialize in helping insurance businesses grow and multiply their growth by attracting, recruiting and retaining the highest performing insurance professionals in the country. Each week in the Coffee House, we interview leading insurance business leaders and discover how they achieve their success, learn what advice they have for other aspiring insurance business leaders, and we discover what makes their business an attractive proposition for high-performing talent. This week, we are delighted to be joined by the President and COO of MJ Insurance, John Lofton. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks, Nick. Great to be with you today. It's great to have you join us today, John. Really looking forward to hearing your insights and your background and the work you're doing there at MJ Insurance. Before we go into the main body of our questions, sir, I just wonder if you could give the listeners a little bit of an insight into your background and your career and also how things are going at MJ Insurance at the moment and your plans for the future. Sure. Yeah. And I, I think um, when I think about my background and it's uh, some conversations that you and I have had, Nick, over time is is I don't know that it's that interesting at the end of the day to me, uh, but hopefully it is to others. And I, I think, you know, with the path to where I am today is I think I would characterize that as a classic right time, right place, not to not to belittle the work that went into it, but certainly opportunistic and took advantage of some opportunities that were presented to me. But Right out of undergraduate school and college, I went to Indiana University and I got a degree in mathematics with some aspirations of being an actuary of all things and learned that I was more than just a numbers guy. While, I, while I'm analytically driven, um, it wasn't just about sitting behind a computer crunching numbers all day that when I was 19 and 20 seemed appealing. But as I got closer to graduation, that became less and less appealing to me, which I'm, which I'm glad it did. And, and yeah. uh, I have a ton of respect for the folks who do that every day. But I got intrigued with the insurance industry by virtue of, of exploring the actuarial profession and got out of school and actually took a job with a firm called Commercial Union Insurance Company, which was a firm that I don't think the brand exists any longer through mergers and acquisitions, but it was based in Boston, Massachusetts, and I uh, was a trainee in, a, in the claims department. So learned a ton. Uh, was, I was with them for 10 years, went through, I think, uh, three mergers and acquisitions, uh, was ultimately owned, at least part of the asset was owned by Liberty Mutual. And it really enjoyed my time there and, and learned, learned a lot and, and uh, have a lot of fond memories and created some foundational skill sets through that first 10 years. But in part of that the role that I had, uh, you know, progression of roles that I had through on the carrier side was working closely with MJ Insurance. Uh, they were a broker of ours and, and in particular managing the relationship on the claim side with the MJ sorority division, which still is a very, very important part of what we do today at MJ. In about 2000, I started in 94 with Commercial Union and in about 2001, I went back to graduate school to get my MBA at Butler University, right. quite frankly, with the intent of uh, likely getting out of the insurance industry, perhaps staying in it from a risk management standpoint on a, on a 
finance basis, was talking to some, you know, Fortune 200, Fortune 150 companies along those lines. And and Cindy Stillhorn, who is our uh, EVP of our MJ Sorority Division, called me and said, hey, what do you want to do when you get done with school? And I said, I'm not sure, but I'm probably going to get out of the industry. But I, uh, a fortuitous uh, acceptance of a lunch appointment with her turned into six months later, um, I became the vice president of operations at MJ. And it was an interesting um, decision that I made because at the time, you know, I think Liberty Mutual is probably 45 or 50,000 employees in the, in their firm and uh, the fortune 125s I'm talking to are, you know, two X, three X to that sometimes. Um, And that was kind of my mindset is continue on the corporate path. And that's just the way you go about creating a fulfilling career because of opportunity. I viewed corporations, big corporations providing more opportunity Mm -hmm. when in fact, that's a case sometimes, but for me, the opportunity at MJ was um, a little bit scary, a little bit of, I viewed it as a risk, even though I'd gone through three mergers and acquisitions, I viewed it as a risk um, because it was, a, it was a small company. I think we were probably right at a hundred employees, maybe 16 or $17 million in revenue at the time. Uh, it's family owned. Um, and so I viewed that part of it a risk, but over about a six month period of talking to uh, the Michael H. Bill, who is now our CEO, and his father, Michael M. Bill, who's a founder, uh, I really came to really respect and admire what they had built over 40 years at that time and where they were going. And it's precisely the reason I went back to graduate school is to be more entrepreneurial and apply some some business skills to uh, my daily work. And so I came over to MJ in, in 2004 as a vice president of operations, yeah. and it was a it was a it was a scary uh, jump for me, quite frankly. But it's it's the opportunity that I took advantage of was jumping into something I had no clue what I was doing, right? And admitted that coming in, they don't have a sales experience, don't have underwriting experience, and effectively, what we do on the brokerage side is sales and underwriting. Yeah. Um, so yet I was coming in uh, with the expectation of running the operational side, not the sales side, not the employee benefits side, um, more of the property and casualty operations side and claims for the most part. And that lasted about, oh, 18 months uh, until I was um, named president in 2006. And um, our current CEO was then president, became chief executive officer at that point in time. And you know, there was a lot of admitting, I don't know what I'm doing, a lot of mistakes, a lot of stupid mistakes. But in retrospect, I think if I look back over the last 16 years, I don't think I would have done it any other way. I was able to learn so much so fast just by jumping into the fire, so to speak, yeah. um, and admitting what I don't know, but being curious and ambitious enough to to learn. And I still do that every day. There's still a lot I don't know, and I still am eager to learn every single day. So I think, how did I get there is somewhat of the question um, is just taking advantage of the opportunity um, and embracing the challenge, knowing full well that I wasn't fully prepared for the role, either one of them, when I was when I was given the role, but but not looking, um, you know, being hesitant about jumping in and learning. So very interesting story, John. I think the fact that you took some time away to do your MBA, and although your vision might have been to carry on your career in, in the corporate world, but actually an entrepreneurial opportunity came up from that and that was part of that MBA obviously that that was the added skills that it gave you to the role I imagine as well from MJ's point of view they probably considered that a little bit of a risk at the time bringing someone in from a non-broking background in terms of where you are now how has the business transformed and developed during your time there 
Yeah, great question. And, and that's something that we're, we're extraordinarily proud of. And I think I mentioned uh, we were at 16 or $17 million in revenue at the time. Yeah. We were in our 40th year of business. We had roughly 100 people um, and we had one office in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, fast forward to, we just finished our fiscal year on August 31st of 2020, uh, just right at $40 million in revenue, have close to 170 associates. We have an office in Indianapolis, an office in Phoenix, Arizona, and are currently looking to expand our geographic reach and a few other markets that we're doing some due diligence on right now. I think what, if you look back on what we've done, it's, it's success to us is not just you know profit and loss. It's not just size. It's how we've done it. And we, we've done it on the backs of being a really good steward of what our founder laid, laid down for us over 40 years. And but building upon that, recognizing that there was we had we were kind of at a plateau and we were ready to go to the next level. And uh, we did that on the backs of, of our core values that, while not necessarily stated over the course of that first 40 years, were clearly observable and expanding upon those and really driving purpose and culture home and leading with that, leading to be as much of a people-centric business as we can, leading with the people part of it first. And kind of to your comment, Nick, about it was a risk for MJ to take knowing that I don't have any broking experience. That's kind of the way we've done business is we find the people that we think can flourish in our environment. While they may not have the exact experience that the position may call for, we know that they can get there based on you know who they are from a characteristic spam standpoint, being curiosity, ambition, and all the things that we that we drive home. So, the company's in really good shape. We um, I think the the last Hales report had us number eighty one on the top one hundred list, and that's that's um, something that's important to us not to see our name in lights necessarily, but as an indicator of scale, because we do believe scale is critically important in this business. And I think it's becoming increasingly so. So we're well positioned. Uh, we have a, a plan through 2029 that we want to we want to take the firm to the, at least in the top 65. Um, now we'll recalibrate that because there's so much M&A activity going on that that top 100 is going to continue to shuffle. But that has us getting to a point of scale to on our next plateau that we feel comfortable with to remain competitive and to have a differentiating advantage. So everything that we do is anchored in that's uh, our, our B number 65 would actually be our 65th year in business. So that's kind of our slogan right now is to be 65 and 65 right. and um, but doing it the right way. We're not, we're not trying to grow just for growth sake. We're, we're, we're growing cautiously and strategically and we're doing it in a way that advances our culture and advances our purpose. Thank you, John. Really looking forward to hearing more about that culture and the way you're doing things as we go through our questions today, and I'm sure our listeners are too. John, before we kick off with the main body of our questions, what's your go-to coffee of choice in the morning? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm pretty simple when it comes to coffee. I do, I do partake. Certainly, it's yeah. it's it's a must-have in the morning for me, just to give me a little kickstart. But I'm I'm a Starbucks guy. Uh, when I'm in route to the office, I have my my route mapped down, and my I use my Starbucks app to hit my my blonde roast, my venti blonde roast from Starbucks every single morning. And and now that we're kind of in this remote spot, my wife is. Uh, brings home the flavored coffee a bit, so I have whatever's in the cupboard, if you will. I think today is some maple pecan Starbucks. So. But my go-to is the Blonde Roast Starbucks. Yeah, it sounds like a bit more experimental when you're at home there. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Great stuff. John, if I could start off by asking you then about that time you broke into the C-suite, in, into that leadership position that you had there. 
How did you find that transition from your from your previous role in the business? Yeah, it's it's uh, alluded to a little bit earlier, but it, interesting to say the least. And um, one I look back on from um, what did I learn and how did I learn it? Because I think it's a it's a, a pretty unique story in that regard. But the the number one thing from a transitionary standpoint, and I mentioned it first, was not really knowing that what I was what I was saying at the time, and not quite frankly being intentional about it. But I was extraordinarily vulnerable in terms of I don't know what I don't know, and I know what I don't know, and being willing just to ask really what I would call borderline stupid questions, and not being afraid of being embarrassed because I don't know the answer to that question. And I think I. I know I did. I came in and I said that to the entire organization that I, I don't come in with a preconceived idea or plan of what needs to be done or how to even do it. I, I come in with the intent to learn and listen for quite some time and then collaborate in a way to, to take the necessary steps forward. Certainly challenging, you know, when, you, when you're trying to gain the trust and credibility of a team that knows you don't know, that's certainly challenging. So you just, it's my, my experience was humble yourself and be as vulnerable as you possibly can and be a, it, it really started, um, not started, it continued my lifelong learning yeah. um, desires. And I became just a insurance and risk management became a hobby of mine. Really at that point in time, once I, once I landed at MJ, it was just, I was absorbed with everything that I could possibly learn. And I still do that to this day. I've um, even been here 16 years. I, I kind of get criticized for being a workaholic at times, but it's a hobby. It really, it, I mean that truly, it really has become a hobby. So the transition was interesting and very rewarding. And I think more of a tribute to MJ's culture than what I did. Uh, they were accepting and um, once you, once you demonstrated the ability to jump in and help figure things out that you're, you're there to, you're there to help not to harm and not to change just for change sake, the culture really embraced me and not suggesting that every, every single person that ever walked the halls of MJ is a raving John Lofton fan necessarily. But I, I, I think that the, again, the cultural foundation that was established from day one was just a perfect fit for me to be able to endure that transition. And what would you say your biggest achievement has been so far in your career there? Yeah, that's that's a tough one, Nick. I got to be honest, and and I don't mean this um, altruistically in any way, shape, or form. But I don't really view any achievement that's been achieved thus far as being me having to do solely with me. It, it's it's a lot, a lot, a lot of we that we've achieved some good things. I think the thing that I try to think and maybe pivot on the question a little bit is what am I most proud of? Yeah, and. What, what I think I'm most, what I know I'm most proud of over the last 16 years is the crystallization of our purpose. was very involved in that. And uh, me, along with several others, really trying to peel that back to go, why do we exist and why are we here? We've been successful and we continue to be successful, but it's not just about profits and paychecks. What, why, why, what is it that's really driving us to do what we're doing and spend the time that we're spending to make MJ the best it can possibly be? That created a really solid foundation you know, to, to, to create the, the proverbial why. And we mean that. We filter everything through that purpose as to why we do things or why we don't do things. And then that put us on a foundation to really get really, really strategic about what we do and strategic about what we're not going to do. Yeah. Uh, so I think if, if you look back on that, and that was really not that long ago in 2012-ish, I want to say, that we really got serious about, hey, let's articulate this, let's define this, and let's create a a filter, so to speak, to make decisions from. That's what I'm most proud of. Is the strategy side of the business, is that something that you really enjoy or is it 
the implementation. Yeah, I'm definitely a strategy guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, you know, execution has been part of my role um, over time, and I and I have done, especially of late, uh, surrounding myself with even more execution-oriented people as my role has broadened and spread and as we've grown. The ability to get in and execute on a daily basis has has been diluted somewhat for me personally, but I love the strategy. I love the X's and O's part of it. I'm a, I'm a football guy. That's my, that's my real passion. My dad was a football coach and the X's and O's of football is what's really exciting to me and try to bring that kind of passion into business. And uh, I really, really, really enjoy that. And problem solving is, is, is a lot of fun for me. Yeah. I, I certainly get that feeling from you, John. That's, that, that's great. Has there ever been a time in your career where you were overlooked for a position or you put yourself forward for a role and you didn't get it? You know, and, and I don't know if I should be embarrassed of this or proud of this, but no, that's, that's, that's not something that has, that I can think of that's ever happened. And I don't, I don't mean that braggadociously in any way, shape or form. I think, you know, I mentioned earlier on that we, on the carrier side, I went through three mergers and acquisitions um, in my 10 years on the carrier side. I never left. I never changed um, jobs, so to speak, certainly changed business cards because who was, who owned the, the firm at that point in time. But as I look back on that, every single time that happened, it, it while nerve-wracking because you don't really know uh, the long-term sustainability of your role, it was an opportunity for me. And what I think happened there was I had to, in two of the three cases anyway, reprove myself to do management and to, and to people who otherwise didn't know me um, so that, but I was fortunate enough to to never have that happen to me. And yeah. I hope it's not because I wasn't aggressive enough in applying for things over my head, but certainly the roles that were, that were, I was asked to do and continue to ask to do. And, you know, that was the, the progression of leadership positions that I got through the, the mergers and acquisitions. So fortunately for me, no, that has not happened. But I think that's still, it's very inspiring for insurance professionals out there whose companies being acquired or they're, they're going through an acquisition at the moment, just to know that actually, you know, if you keep doing the things you've been doing, if you make the most of those opportunities and, and show those, you know, the new owners, the new managers coming in that you, you're doing a great job, you can be very, very successful during those acquisitions and they shouldn't necessarily be something to fear. I think that's very well said, Nick. John, moving now to sort of present day, how is MJ adopting new technology or implementing digital change to help meet the needs of your customers? Yeah. So when we set out our vision, you know, I talked in, um, you know, the, the purpose really being the foundation to leading to a very bona fide vision. And, but we really didn't complete the vision, the 10 year vision that we have until late 2018, early 2019. And part of that vision that we would describe is becoming a tech enabled data driven insurance and risk management consulting firm, distinctive from an insurance agency. Right. There's with no disrespect to traditional insurance agencies, there's certainly a place for those. But we made an intentional decision to become tech tech enabled and data driven. And those things, um, those two things um, really drive just about everything that we do, in addition to our purpose being people centric on the tech side. Part of that was, you know, we like pretty much the balance of the industry was uh, our, our technology was dated. It was archaic. It wasn't progressive. It was very reactive. 
um, and disparate systems all over the place, just patching holes and doing whatever we needed to do. And that was quite frankly, by design, we just didn't put the relative importance on that that we are today. So instead of just saying, Hey, let's, let's try this piece of software or this piece of hardware, or let's, let's adopt this technology or that technology. We again, went about it very strategically and uh, brought in a third party consultant in 2017. It really took the balance of 2017 to do was create a five-year digital strategy, which turned into a digital transformation strategy, right? So there's just a whole host of things, whether it's from, you know, people, whether it's from hardware, whether it's from software, whether it's from change management, the whole, we went through a whole digital strategy maturity model coming from where we were to where we ultimately want to be. And we're about two and a half years into that. As we sit back, uh, and there's a number of people, the entire executive team was involved in that. We sit back and you know, the big reveal, the, the, the summary of the consultant's work, the big reveal, I'll never forget it. We were sitting in a, in a huge training room uh, in our office and there was, you know, just post-it notes all over the office of everything that we needed to do. And I just sat back and said, how are we going to do this? And the consultant said, you're not going to do it by yourself. You guys need a CIO. Mm-hmm. And which wasn't necessarily on our radar. You know, we have really good people in our IT team, and, but it wasn't on our, on our radar at all. And it quickly became, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And we did that, right? We hired a bona fide CIO and Chad Miller's a CIO today, and he's done a fantastic job. What he's done, again, he's executing, you know, not exactly to a T. (laughs) You can imagine a five-year digital strategy is obsolete about the time you print it off the printer, but he's done a really good job of organizing our organization around technology. And I'm the wrong person to talk to you about all the, you know, whether we're in the cloud or what technology we're actually using. That's my, my vocabulary is not up to speed on that regard. Mm-hmm. But what I can tell you today is had we not done that walking into March 13th, when, you know, COVID really hit in our environment to where we sent everybody home, there's no way we'd have been ever been able to endure what we did. That's the infrastructure piece. In addition to that, the, Technology has enabled us to be very analytical. I'd said the other part of that is the data-driven side of it. So from that, we've been able to create our own proprietary analytic system we call Aperture and has been the single biggest differentiator in our value proposition, especially on our employee benefit side and also on our property and casualty side now that we've ever had. And it, it really allows us, I would say, to quote unquote, punch above our weight. So we feel very comfortable in competing with anybody and everybody on the basis of analytics, which has been you know, such, a, such a, a, a heightened demand for decision makers that, that we're consulting with to be able to make their decisions. So again, all the different things that we do on technology side, whether it's, you know, how, how do we, how do we solve a, a, a frictional point in the customer journey? Yeah, we, we think about that. We talk about every, that every day. Another component of what we do is we're part of um, a conglomerate of, of 13 super regional brokers around the country called Broker Tech Ventures, yeah. Um, yeah. Where, where Dan Kehoe at Holmes Murphy and Mike Victorson at M3 out of Madison, Wisconsin, yeah. extraordinarily bright people had this vision and we're, we're, one of 13 that are involved in that. And I won't go into to all the different things as that provides, but that provides us an insight into very bright minds, not only on the brokerage side, but it's broker centric. But we have some carrier involvement now. We have obviously the insure tech community that is getting involved in this. And we'll have, you know, I think 12 cohorts that just graduated and probably bringing in as many next uh, in the next cycle so that we get kind of a front row seat, look under the hood as to what's going on in technology so that we can be progressive and always thinking ahead and being on the leading edge of that to be able to adopt the, 
the technology that we need to. Those are that's just a little bit of a flavor. I could go on all day about that question. Dave. So so interesting, John. And actually, I know Dan Keo very well, and the the work they're doing there at Broker Tech Ventures very very interesting. Our listeners would be pleased to know that that Dan is coming onto our show, and he'll be explaining a bit more about how that all works, which is really exciting stuff. So yeah, that that will be a must listen, Nick. Dan Dan's a a very bright, innovative guy, so that'll be a must listen for your listeners there. Uh, it certainly will. It certainly will. And I, I really think what, what you've been saying there about strategy and execution with that data technology transformation, it's about having that strategy, but also then finding the key people to implement that strategy. If you don't have the, the key people there, then that's often where that strategy falls down. John, looking ahead, what would you say are the major challenges that you see for insurance executives going forward and how should they be adapting to be successful in these times? Yeah, I think if you ask any um, leader, executive, whatever, in the insurance industry to, to name the top two, I would be shocked if one of those is not talent acquisition and, and retention of that. And really where I go with that is creating an employee experience that is differentiable. And we can prove, in my view, we can prove to those that aren't in the industry today, that it is an extraordinarily rewarding career on all fronts, not just financially, but in terms of the noble cause that the industry serves, the lack of monotony, the resiliency through economic downturns. It's it's an unbelievably misunderstood industry, in my view. Um, and I think that that being one of the key issues that our industry still faces, although I think as an industry, we're doing better today, but we still have a long way to go. When you think, you know, and this is the one that makes me cringe, especially in this day and age with what's going on with civil unrest and everything else is the industry being referred to almost kind of um, in a disrespectful way, but even within the industry, kind of making fun of ourselves that we're a male pale stale industry. And there's nothing that makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up any more than that, because the, the reality is it's true. Statistically speaking, it's true. It, but I see so much opportunity in that and um, to be able to, to, to flip that on its head because it doesn't have to be true. There's, there's nothing that says it has to be true, but we have to be intentional about changing that. So I think that is a huge opportunity for all of us. And I, again, I think the industry is doing much better of portraying the opportunities in our career much better than it's boring. It's sales. All it is is sales and it's selling products to buyers who don't really want it or need it. Um, I think we're doing a much better job of, of, of articulating and demonstrating how extraordinarily interesting and the, the importance of what our industry does, right? Just the, the millions and millions and millions of people I think there's what close to 3 million people that work in the United States and in insurance industry alone. And that may not even include the health insurance side of things that you look at that over time, you would think that number would go down. It's not, it's going up in spite of the efficiency gains by virtue of technology. So that tells you through all of the economic up and downs and all the, the things that are going on, you would think that this, if this were an industry that's not exciting and not rewarding, the view would start to see some deterioration in that. It's not, it's, it's, it continues to remain very stable and in fact grow in terms of its population. So that would be number one. And, and two other things I'll say real quick from a challenging standpoint is the tech data thing that I talked about is this cornerstone to our strategy. That's, that is also extraordinarily frustrating because the flow of data 
through the supply chain, if you will, on, especially on the property and casualty side of the business. All it is, it's, some of that exists on the employee benefit side as well. Is extraordinarily challenging because we're all working from a different perspective or point of view and all working from different systems. And we most people view your data as proprietary information. When I have a different viewpoint on that, I think that is a commodity. I think what you do with the data is your proprietary secret sauce, if you will. So I think trying to get, you know, we can have all the technology and all the, the, the abundance of data and all the technology that we want. But if we can't make those two things talk to one another and work, work together to make the flow of that data really efficient, it's, it's, it's going to dilute what's otherwise possible, right? When, when all we have to work on in our industry is data, <laughs> right? We, I think we need to make that, we as an industry need to work really hard in making that exchange of data in a mutually beneficial way really, really easy. Yeah, 100%. And interesting to hear what you say about the, the data piece is that you're actually relying on external stakeholders as well to improve their technology and the way they use it as well. So you can't just rely on the, the data that you get as a business. It needs to be what other businesses are doing too and that, things like that. The Absolutely. ventures is a fantastic opportunity, but also what else is happening in InsureTech and with, with some of the carriers as well. I think it be an interesting time going forward and I think, I think you're obviously very well placed to move forward with that. Uh, John, we now turn to the espresso round, uh, so-called as the questions are short, sharp and straight to the point. Uh, so can I ask you, John, are you ready for the espresso round? I absolutely am. Fantastic. The espresso round. John, what are the characteristics about MJ Insurance that make it such a great place to work at? I think I've alluded to it a couple of times already. With the, the number one thing is crystal clear on our purpose. And I say this all the time unapologetically committed to it. So the, our purpose, you know, I, I went through that. We, uh, in 2012, we really went through the discovery process to understand not aspirationally what we want to be, but who we are, what's our DNA and why, why are we here? And it was, it was well, not easy. It was extraordinarily rewarding, extraordinarily eye-opening to see the common fabric that runs through everything that we've done for, for now, you know, going into our 57th fiscal year is, is it's, Insurance is the mechanism for which we go about doing things, but really the reason we exist is to inspire the success, fulfillment, and well-being of each person that we serve. That's exactly what our purpose statement says. And we list those people that we serve or our constituents as our employees and their families. We, we mentioned them one and one A, even before our clients, which sometimes raises an eyebrow here or there. But in the service industry, that we have to have really super engaged, uh, fulfilled people that are that are interested in their own well-being, interested in their own success. And we do everything that we can to facilitate that. And sometimes that is, you know, on a very rare occasion, I should say, is looked at as, yeah, hey, I just want to come to work and I don't want to be bothered. I just want to sit over here, be quiet, do my job. Okay. And that's when I say we're unapologet unapologetically committed to that. And it's becomes somewhat uncomfortable if you're not curious and ambitious and, and, and you have, you're inspiring and you have all of our core values, it becomes a little bit uncomfortable. So, but what that has done on the flip side of that is it makes it a desirable place to work to where is recruiting still difficult? Yes. For the reasons I explained prior, 
but is it a heck of a lot easier than it, than it was before? Yes, it is. Because we get people who come from out of the industry that say, Hey, I see what you guys are doing on social media, social media, or I hear what my friend says who works there about this. I'm in the medical field, but I'm, I'm contemplating a switching careers. and I want to explore the insurance industry because of what you do. There's nothing you can say better to me than that. Right. And so I think that's, that's primary reason, Nick, as to why it makes, it's a great place to work. But I would also say it's the, the clarity and vision and where we're going and how we're going to get there. I think we do a really good job of explaining that and backing that up with action. We're not perfect in that regard. We're not flawless in execution. Just, I don't think anybody is, but we, there's not a single person in our firm who can't point to where we're going to be in 10 years, where we're going to be in three years, where we're going to be 12 months from now and how we're going to get there. That is, uh, it was the communication part of that. I think we've missed in, in years past to say, hey, here's where we're going, but not being very specific about how we're getting there. It gives people the opportunity to understand what their role is and how their role contributes to the overall success of the organization. So I think we've done a really good job of that. And then I think finally, who we are, what we do and how we do it, right? We're again, we're number 81 on the, on the top 100 list, according to Hale's latest report. And so that gives us some size, but we're still 170 people. So we have some size and scale and clout, if you want to call it that, but yet we're still a nimble, small, closely held, privately held is, is the other thing that we're very passionate about. A business that makes that a, a fun place to work, that there's opportunity and it's a relatively flat organization. So I think that that's what people clamor to. And that's what, that's what most folks would say about MJ is that's why I'm here. Thank you, John. I think what I sort of took from that is that it's a, it's very much two way street. If you're, if you're putting that out there as your purpose and your vision, your opportunity for people saying that actually your employees are more important almost than, than the customers, then you're going to want people and you're going to naturally attract people who want to give that back to the business and not sit in the corner and just get on to the work. You're going to naturally find those inquisitive people and those curious people who actually want to give to the business and, and give back to those customers at the end of the day for the people you're serving. For those people, John, what opportunities do you provide to high performers there to develop their skills and to progress their career into leadership roles? Yeah, we could we could have a separate session on that alone, Nick. In terms of you know that's that's kind of the third leg. I talk I talk tech, I talk data, and then learning and development was another major and intentional strategic lever that we have now began to really really developed. We three years ago, you know, was able to sketch out a strategy of why is learning and development so important to us. Um, and I think it goes without saying based on who are what our purpose is. But in addition to, you've got to be able to take people through learning curves and and help them along their their career journey in a challenging way to keep them on the steep part of that learning curve to keep to keep the engagement there. And that over time in the insurance industry was usually a function of what the carriers did in terms of training and development, and that dried up. Uh, there's, you're starting to see some of it come back, but that dried up in large part. And it was agnostic as to your value proposition. So there was very general in terms of how you were able to take and track and develop folks. So we invested in uh, a, a full-blown learning and development department. And we have even gone so far as to state that we'll, we'll spend in learning and development, we'll spend about 5% of our revenue, not our profit, 5% of our revenue allocating to learning and development and growing, growing folks within our organization. We hired a chief chief people officer. We have we brought talent acquisition in house. We have a huge library in a, of resources, some inside, some third party resources that we leverage in terms of leadership and training. Um, again, 
go on and on and on and on. We do have a program called MJ Connect, where we have a mentor-mentee relationship um, for anybody and everybody who wants to participate in that in the organization. So there's there's tracks to run on. And again, we're improving on that on an iterative basis every single day to 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 get as specific as we need to get to to sit down and say, and we have a process that we call strategic workforce planning that allows each individual associate to say, here's where I want to be and here's when I want to be there. And then back up to, okay, here's what that path looks like to that. Here's what you need to do, Mr. or Mrs. Associate. And here's the resources that we have available to you. There's a lot of that we push back across the table to go, again, you got to be curious. You got to be ambitious. You got to be determined. And so here, here you are. We'll provide the track, but you got to run. So, and again, that's, it's, it's not perfect, but it's being improved every single day. And it's, it's, it's demonstrating some results already, but just a ton of, ton of um, emphasis in intentional strategic work being done there. Sounds like a fantastic opportunity for development of insurance executives. What do you guys look for? You say not necessarily an insurance background. What, what do you look for in terms of skills or behaviors of insurance executives that you bring into the business? You got to be people focused. I think that, that will come as no surprise based on our conversation thus far. And, and, and you've got to be an engaging leader in that respect is, is Patrick Lincioni has a great book out called The Motive that basically says, if you're not passionate about servant leadership, which is the only kind of leadership in his mind, then you're, you shouldn't be a leader. Uh, and it's okay to say, I'm not passionate about that. But to be a people manager in our firm, that's something you have to be passionate about that. That's not just, oh yeah, and I'll do that too, just because that's part of the job and I want a title or I want you know a promotion or whatever the case may be. That's a non-negotiable skill. You have to be people focused. And we all we all can always get better at that. So the other thing is there's there's got to be some strategic orientation with some business acumen. You don't have to be an MBA. You don't have to be um, a finance wizard. You don't have to be you know a, a Six Sigma, you know, certified operational consultant or anything like that. But you do have to have some business acumen. You do have to have strategic orientation. In other words, what what should be implied in that is you're expected to come to the table with thoughts and ideas, not just be a really good order taker um, and sit back. There's there's You've got to be able to run into the fire, so to speak, in that regard. And then finally, you yourself have to be a lifelong learner. Uh, there's, there's, you know, there's this business is way too complex to ever get complacent um, in terms of, hey, I've been doing this for 26 years now. I know everything. No, you don't, you don't, you don't know a fraction of what is out there to learn. So those are the three things amongst a whole list of other things. But I would say those are the top three skill sets that we really try to screen against in terms of your, your capabilities and becoming an executive. Fantastic. And you absolutely practice what you preach there in, in terms of lifelong learning, which I think is great. John, what is the largest challenge you find when attracting new talent to a business? I think it's, and I mentioned it a little bit before, it's overcoming the negative stigma that the industry still has. When you look at, you know, whatever data point you've heard, 2%, I've heard 4% of all millennials in the US have any interest whatsoever in the insurance industry. So that you're, you know, swimming upstream or you're facing a massive headwind just to get going. Uh, so that that's extraordinarily frustrating when we are also passionate and know how rewarding the career can be just to try to educate and demonstrate how good of a career this really is. You know, and, and you know, I've got two teenage kids of my own. I've got uh, two nephews in their 20s who are, you know, not because they're related to me, but because my sister, their mother did a phenomenal job, phenomenal job with them. They're extraordinarily bright. 
you ask them about the insurance industry and then they'll turn their nose up and go, no way. And I'm not interested in any way, shape or form. And then to dig into why it's just, it doesn't sound exciting. I'd, I need a recognizable name on my business card or, you know, when I tell my friends what I do, they're not saying this, my nephews aren't saying this, but this is a common response of, yeah, man, I tell my friends what I do. It's just not sexy. Right. So again, I think the industry is doing a much better job of that, but it's, that's the number one thing to overcome that negative stigma, just to, to penetrate that as a, Hey, I'm, I'm intentionally seeking this. Most of us in this business landed here. We didn't intentionally design our careers to get here. We landed in this in this space uh, out of necessity for finding a job or a family member being in it. So I think we have the opportunity to, to flip that on its head, to find this as a destination career. And we're starting to see that. You know, some universities, you know, particularly Butler University, who we do a lot of work with, really innovative in trying to overcome that. Uh, we've partnered with them and started the world's only student-run insurance captive. So it's called the MJ Insurance, the MJ Student-Run Insurance Company at Butler University. And it's 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 having some impact. You know, Butler's a private school, not a it's not a public, you know, 50,000 student school, but you're having people reach out and say, what's this captive thing all about? This seems cool. This isn't what I thought insurance was. I thought it was, you know, selling a life insurance policy over the kitchen table at 7 p.m. at night to your to your cousin or your friend. And I think that's going to continue and hopefully overcome that obstacle. Right. I think the other thing too that's challenging is there's some aspects of it uh, that are it's an investment. You make an investment in your career and there's a lot to learn in the industry. And it's, and it's especially on the sales side, it's not an instant gratification business. The sales cycle is so long and it's really, you have to invest in, you know, multi-years, three, four, five years, just to kind of get your foundational uh, book of business built to where you can really accelerate from there. It's not like some other sales careers that if you've got good connections and contacts or Rolodex, if you will, that you can leverage that and, and do well really fast. It's it's not, we've seen it. We've had some ex- examples of that, but it's certainly the exception rather than the norm. It takes a multi-year commitment to really get your foundation and your sea legs underneath you before you can really take off. So I think those are the two things that, that we oftentimes uh, try to overcome. But there's, again, a laundry list of things that get frustrating from, from talent acquisition. And, and it's time consuming. Like I said, we brought the majority of our talent acquisition work in-house because we felt it was important to not only reach out to potential candidates or cultivate a more a, or a deeper talent pool, a breadth and depth of a talent pool, but to be able to do so in a manner which conveyed our culture that you know I've led to is so critically important. However, uh, there's space too for you know outside recruiting that gets done that uh, for those folks who can really tell our story and help us, you know, blanket the market in a broader basis just to make sure that we're getting the quality of candidate in the door. So it's challenging. And I think any insurance executive in the business, especially on the brokerage side, would say the exact same thing. Yeah. I think the education piece is key, especially to people from outside of the industry. And I think it's actually our certainly our duty as insurance recruiters to educate candidates from a wider pool but I think also organizations themselves I think for for the succession of of that business need to be out there educating and teaching people about the opportunities in the insurance or or risk industry as we sometimes like to call it which uh, sound a little bit more sexy yeah. Yeah. Uh, but to I'm, that point, and to that point, Nick, I'll make a quick yeah. point. So when we, re, we, we, we rebranded, oh my gosh, probably three years ago now, close to three years ago now, our la- our latest rebranding, we did a lot of research in that regard to the tune, you know, the, to the, to the note of insurance. And we were MJ insurance Inc. And our prior branding, it was MJ insurance, MJ insurance, MJ insurance. It's just MJ. 
you know, you see any, anywhere on, on any of our marketing collateral on our website and where you see our logo, it's MJ. And then there'll be risk management employee benefits consulting. Cause you're right. The negative connotation, just the word insurance in your name was off-putting to potential candidates who were otherwise uneducated about the career. So there's some, there's some real truth to what you just said. Yeah. And I, th- I think you get a real sense for the business when you talk about risk management consulting, as opposed to agency or you know, yeah, like a, a, sal- a salesman coming into someone's house at seven o'clock to to your granny to sign on the dotted line, you know, for their, <laughs> for their life insurance. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Process, and I, I think that will attract certainly attract higher higher caliber candidates to the business. John, if there are insurance executives out there in the United States considering their next mover opportunity, what would your advice be to them? Great question. And I talk a lot about this, not necessarily to executive to executive, but certainly to do a fair bit of mentoring with college aid students and young professionals and speak a lot about being honest with yourself, what you want. Right. And we, 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 we do this thing called the, the love, hate, good, bad metrics matrix, and really trying to plot the activities that energize you, um, that you love and what you are or can become good at. And if you're finding that a lot of your time is in areas that you may be good at, but you hate, and even worse, areas that you hate and you're bad at, you're going to burn out and that's not going to be something that's fulfilling to you. So I would say that to anybody, executive making transitions, you know, and, and I think if I look back on, you know, I have to say, what would I tell my 22-year-old self or my 33-year-old self when I came to MJ was, was, was being honest with what you really want and pursuing that with vigor and passion and really taking accounting of what do you love? What are you, what are you good at? Or what can you become good at? Because it's not just you can become any, in spite of what your parents tell you when you're young, you can become anything you want to. Um, I'm still waiting on getting drafted by the Dallas Cowboys to be the quarterback, and that's just not happening. But it's what you can become good at and what you realistically can become good at. Setting your sights high for sure. But I think that's what I would continue to encourage people to do is, is really taking an honest look of, what is fulfilling and what is energy driving versus energy draining. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, John. I think that advice is really, really pertinent, particularly at the moment. We've almost reached the end of our time together in the insurance coffee house USA today. Before we go, can I just ask you if you have one piece of closing advice for our listeners and how would they go about contacting you after the show? Yeah. The advice I would say is, is be proud of what you do. You know, you're, you're, if you're listening to this, you're likely in the insurance and risk management space. Be proud of what you do uh, and advocate. Advocate on behalf of our industry because our industry needs it. You know, whether it's some of the uh, issues that are in front of us now in our society, um, whether it be the civil unrest, whether it be COVID-related insurance issues, whether it be, you know, hurricanes or fires or everything else that we do, be proud of what you do and the noble cause that you serve and promote that and advocate on behalf of, of your peers in the industry uh, to continue to elevate this as a, as, a, as a noble industry and one that's, that's worth pursuing. And then how can they, how can they uh, contact me? I'm, I'm active on LinkedIn, John Lofton. Uh, and then certainly my email, I'm an active email user. So it's john.lofton at mjinsurance.com. And then visit our website at mjinsurance.com. There's a plethora of information. My contact information is on there as well and a number of other resources that I'd be glad for you to, to view. Fantastic, John. Fantastic. Yeah, we will post your contact details on our show notes so our listeners can click straight through and, and contact you there. That's great. John, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate you speaking to us. I've learned an awful lot about the business, but also found a lot of your advice very, very inspiring. And I'm sure our listeners would have done too. 
Well, thank you, Nick. And thank you all for what you're doing, uh, both on the podcast and what you're doing and um, an insurance search for, for promoting the, the industry and keep up the good work. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, John. To all the insurance business leaders out there listening today, whether you're based in the US or internationally in, in UK, Europe or across the world, we thank you for listening today. And I'm sure you would have gained a lot of insight and, and great learnings from John today. If you do enjoy the show, please leave us a review on your podcast app and remember to download and subscribe to the show so you receive each of our episodes into your inbox each week. Till next time, I've been Nick Hoadley. This has been the Insurance Coffee House USA. Take You've care. been listening to the Insurance Coffee House with Nick Hoadley. Join us next time to hear more insights and inspiring success stories to help you become a better insurance business leader. Available to download or subscribe now.